From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Equipment that's meant to reduce the damage from gunshot wounds is being put into schools. What does that say about the problem of gun violence? As a society, I think this is a moment for reflection. Then, people struggling with addiction and hopelessness find comfort in CPR's Vic Vela and his podcast, Back From Broken. Here's the thing, Vic's own sobriety benefits as well. It does save my own high. Mm -hmm. It helps me in my own recovery because that's how recovery works. People are like, oh, I don't want to be a burden and tell you all my problems. No, you're not a burden. You're helping me. Vic joins us as a new season of his podcast debuts. We'll dip into an episode featuring musician and TV personality, Carney Wilson. CPR leadership partners make gifts of $10,000 or more to support Colorado Public Radio. Leadership partner, Maury Sussman. When I first started listening to CPR, I became much more reflective about the world in which my grandchildren would grow up. That's why I have enthusiastically supported CPR. Please consider supporting to keep Colorado Public Radio strong at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Kits meant to stop someone from bleeding are being made available to schools. State lawmakers voted to pay for them for three years. One former educator in Colorado is alarmed at what this means for our kids and people who work in schools. Jesus Sanchez Milian wrote an editorial about this law to provide bleeding kits in the bilingual newspaper El Comercio de Colorado, and welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Why does this new law give you pause? Because uh, this is like uh, an admission that nothing can be done to go to the root of the problem rather than fighting or avoiding weapon going to the wrong hands, we are putting a bleeding kit in the schools. So this is an admission of it is impossible to move ahead. You see this as surrendering in some ways. Yes. Isn't it important, given the realities, that there be a tool in a classroom to stanch the bleeding? Of course, it's important, but it's also an admission that this would continue happening. And you then that it, we it, need to be prepared for future massacre here. Then this is a terrible admission as a society. You think that this does not address the root causes? Of course. Mm. Because when you go to a building or a school, you will see the kit to prevent fire, but also you will see the kit to prevent bleeding. So it is incredible. You're saying that you might see a fire extinguisher, yes. and you're going to see, uh, for lack of a better term, a blood extinguisher, a, you of know, course. a bleeding extinguisher. This is a normalizing situation. And a, then, a new normal, and it's not a normal you're comfortable with. Of course. Mm -hmm. This law comes just after the school shooting in Nashville, around the anniversary of the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, those are just a couple of examples. Uh, you know, I asked Governor Polis about these new bleed kits a couple of weeks ago, and here's what he said. 
Well, I, I certainly support that law, but that's not the mar- the marquee public safety laws that we passed this session. The, the biggest thing we did that I think will improve school safety is you have to be 21 to purchase a gun in Colorado now. So uh, 18-year-olds uh, were able to legally purchase guns. Uh, now it's age 21. It's always been 21 for pistols, but it was 18 for rifles. Now it's 21 regardless of the class of arms. Uh, we also added a three-day waiting period for that purchase. So, I mean, of course, um, we support making sure we have more medical assistance needed where we can. But um, I think these other measures will absolutely help reduce gun violence in the school setting. If you were a lawmaker, do you think you would have opposed the bleed kit law? No, it is okay. But my analysis is more more philosophical in the sense that it is important that the people realize that it is a society that I need to have a bleeding kit in a school. But as uh, Governor Polis already said, the other important component in the current legislation was to make it possible that teachers can report or can inform to a a judge about a student having guns. This is another development of the red flag law. Indeed. So it is important. The law to allow for extreme risk protection orders Mm -hmm. where someone's firearms are temporarily removed if they are a threat to themselves or others. It has been broadened who might be able to apply for something like that uh, for judicial review. And now the teacher can report, can make this report in addition to the parent, the law enforcement officer. Imagine that this law had been in place when in the East High School, this student start bringing weapons to the school. I mentioned that you are a former educator. Your wife and adult kids also work in schools, right? Yes. Tell us about them. And then what, what happened is my, my son already graduated and uh, got a master's degree in art. And then he decided that he wanted to be educator. Like we say, oh, <laughs> This is like a war zone at this moment, but is it your decision? Ah, you you had some hesitation about him becoming an educator? Imagine that we as a parent now need to consider the school as a a war zone. Mm -hmm. But in this case, his mission is that. And then your wife is also an educator. Yes. I'll say that the group that makes these kits stop the bleed credits a retired Denver ER doctor with the original idea. Uh, They say this physician, Peter Pons, had the idea of training the public to control bleeding the same way people are generally aware of how to perform CPR. Uh, To be clear, the idea started as much bigger than just schools, and these trainings have happened in non-school settings. Uh, At least one of the bill's sponsors said in testimony, why not provide these kits? Three witnesses testified in the state Senate in support of the bill. They talked about being parents and working in the medical field, saying this provides them some peace of mind that if something happens, there will be adults on hand who are trained to save lives. A fourth witness said he's neutral on the bill because of the same concerns that you are raising. As you followed the legislation, did you hear anything in the testimony or from conversations you had that stood out? No, I, for me, it was a surprise, it, uh, the level of uh, agreement 
between uh, Democrat and Republican on this kind of legislation. It was a surprise too that it was bipartisan. Yes, mm -hmm. and then the level of commitment of both sides on on the approval of this legislation. But as I told you, the the problem here is that if we uh, see this as a practical approach, maybe the kids are needed. But as a society, is I think this is a moment for reflection. You know, there was an assault weapons ban proposed that was defeated. Do you think that there should have been an assault weapons ban? Of course, of course. I don't have a doubt on that. Mm -hmm. Anything else that you'd be a proponent of? I think that uh, the idea is that the other component of all of that is uh, working on uh, mental health because maybe many people who are getting to weapon as a last resort of a big problem. Do you worry about your family that's in the classroom? Is that something you think about on a daily basis? Sometimes. I don't, I don't think this every day, but it's, it's, I think that when you read news, <laughs> every week about uh, event in, in a school you have fear. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing the Not commentary. For me. for me, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Jesus Sanchez Melian edits El Comercio de Colorado, the bilingual newspaper. We'll link to his editorial on bleed kits at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. We are all broken sometimes and may need a little help, which is why Back From Broken exists, CPR's podcast about recovery from addiction, from a breakdown. The fourth season is here, and so is Vic Vela, the show's creator and host. Hi, Vic. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me, man. Your own road Back From Broken inspired this podcast, and amidst the heaviness, there is always room for laughter. Is that intentional? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's the old cliche. Laughter is the best medicine. And there's a lot to be said about that. Like, I I really mean it when I tell people that if it weren't for a sense of humor, if it weren't for taking myself so seriously, if it weren't for laughing out loud during some of the darkest periods of my life, I wouldn't be alive today. There is healing in laughter in that when you're sitting in a room, a recovery room, doing the 12 steps with a bunch of other people who have gone through similar experiences as you have, and you're able to laugh with those shared experiences because you hear your story and someone else's, it's like we have a language all our own and we're able to relate on a different plane than uh, quote-unquote normies out there who don't know what it's like to tank your life savings to buy all the cocaine that you uh, that only lasts for a week so being able to laugh at those moments uh is pivotal when we look back because there's so many emotional scars that we come back from and and to be able to do that with a little bit of uh, humor is, is i think is kind of important did you spend your life savings on a week's cocaine 
I spent my life savings on drugs and alcohol. Sure. I, uh, and we talked about that in previous seasons of back from broken. I remember in back from broken season one, Paul Scudo, who is the executive director of step Denver. He showed up at his house one day and all of his belongings were, were thrown out on the front yard because he wasn't paying his mortgage and now he's homeless. And with me, uh, when I moved back to Denver uh, from New Mexico, I, I cashed out all of my 401k savings and basically uh, spent it getting a new place, probably about half of that. But the rest of it went toward drugs and cocaine. The intent was to flip it, you know, buy a bunch of cocaine and then sell it back to friends. And in theory, that sounds great. In theory, you're going to make money and pay for your own habit. But in practice, when you're a cocaine addict and you have a bunch of cocaine around you, you're going to do it. <laughs> you're going to do it all. And that was the sad story. Notice I just laughed at that because, <laughs> because we come back, Ryan, we, we really can come back. And, and that's why my message, as you know, for over the last four years and over the last eight years that I've been sober is we can recover. Season four features the journeys of people whose names we wouldn't necessarily recognize a father helping his son navigating the pain of watching his child suffer a woman in recovery who started her own support group because she didn't really see a place for herself as a black woman. You also feature celebrities, um, like the first episode we're going to share with singer and TV personality Carney Wilson. Talk about what this range says about recovery and maybe addiction. Oh, we're everywhere. Even if you're not directly yourself addicted to some sort of substance, Ryan, chances are you know someone who is very close to you who is suffering. And that's where we are at this point in, in America. Like if we all know someone either in our families or our best friends or work who we really love and adore and cherish who are really suffering. And, you know, I interviewed in season two, the son of the president of the United States, Hunter Biden described to me in season two the scene of his dad wrapping his arms around him, begging him, asking him, please tell me how to help you. This is the president who is clueless in terms of helping, helping his own child. And I think it's something that many, many people can relate to. And I think getting back to your question on the, on the range of guests, it's because addiction doesn't give a darn uh, how much money you have or how many albums you've sold or how many uh, home runs you've hit or how many friends you have or don't have. It'll take you down all the same. Yeah, for me, it was my father who was addicted to pain pills and yeah. actually shared his journey on Colorado Matters with us. People approach you all the time about the effect that Back From Broken has had on their lives. In fact, Vic, people approach me saying, tell Vic Vela <laughs> the, effect, the effect he's had on me. Um, does that end up helping you? It does. First of all, thank, I, I remember that episode with your father, Ryan. I, I was so glad that he shared that. And, and it goes to, again to the point that we're all connected in some way. Hmm. I, you know, I was at these Dead & Company shows over July 4th weekend featuring members of the Grateful Dead. It was their final hurrah tour. And it was three nights in Boulder, surrounded by tens of thousands of deadheads and tens of thousands of different kinds of drugs and alcohol. Uh -huh. um, you know, several people came up to me. Are you Vic Vela? Yeah, you know, I love Back From Broken. I was in, it was in line for the restroom. And the first guy who walks out uh, puts his sunglasses on and extends his arms out wide and says, Vic Vela, I, I'm two years sober. I mean, 
total strangers telling me the most intimate details of their lives. Mm -hmm. There is no greater compliment. And it does help my own recovery because when I have a friend who's in crisis or someone who is a newcomer who is really struggling and is thinking about going into that bar or, or shooting that needle into their arm, I drop everything and I'm, what I'm doing to talk to them and see if they could just get through that minute, that one minute, because that one minute can maybe change things. It does save my own high. Mm -hmm. It helps me in my own recovery because that's how recovery works. People are like, oh, I don't want to be a burden and tell you all my problems. No, you're not a burden. You're helping me. When I help someone who is struggling, I'm helping in my own recovery. And then they give something back to someone else. It's this beautiful circle of life that we can be a part of and, and thrive in. I have this idea of calling you America's sponsor. Vic Vela, America's sponsor. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I understand that the final episode of this fourth season, just to kind of fast forward to the end, yeah. is especially personal for you. You've had a tough year health-wise. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if those health issues tested your sobriety. This was the the idea of Joe Erickson, who's one of our producers on Back From Broken. You know, in the first season, I tell my story of how I struggled with drugs and alcohol and how I got better. And uh, for the fourth season, given that I've been going through a lot of health issues for listeners who don't know, on top of being someone in recovery who has overdosed more times than I can remember, who was addicted to crack cocaine and meth and other substances, and who is living with HIV, I was diagnosed with diabetes earlier this, this year, which was not a shock so much because it runs in my family, but it hit me. I, I, it's like I woke up one day and I have full-blown diabetes and my blood sugar and cholesterol is through the roof and my T cells are depleting and I, I can't even read text messages because I'm, I can't see. <sighs> it was frightening. And Joe had the idea as I'm recovering from that, she's like, I think this would help out a lot of people who wonder what it's like for someone who's already in recovery to deal with life's issues, to yeah. live life on life's terms. I can't, I don't have the luxury of drinking a glass of scotch to cool down or, or doing some cocaine. So to answer your question, when you're someone who has struggled with addiction and that little thing can trigger you, any little thing can trigger you to go run to the dealer, that's hard enough. But then you deal with the big issue of something that's causing life-changing health issues. I was on my on the phone with sponsors and friends every day, mm. just getting things off my chest. And that's the magic of recovery is that's how it works. When you are struggling, it doesn't matter if you're struggling with drugs or alcohol or just struggling with a breakup yeah. or, or with work, your boss or whatever, you got to pick up the phone or you will pick up a drug. And that's my reality. Vic, thanks so much. And uh, we'll listen to this first episode of the new season. Thanks, Ryan. Back from Broken is back, CPR's podcast about recovery. We just spoke with host and creator Vic Vela about the fourth season. Here he is now with the season premiere. Carney Wilson was born into the spotlight. She's the daughter of music legend Brian Wilson, co-founder of the Beach Boys and one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Brian Wilson blew minds in the music industry with the epic Beach Boys album, Pet Sounds. Whoa! 
And just like her father, Carney Wilson would become famous in her own right, along with the pop music trio Wilson Phillips. And in 1990, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing this song. Now, you might think that growing up in a house with one of the most innovative musical minds of the 20th century would be a dream. But fame and fortune has its dark side. Addiction runs in my family. Alcoholism in particular runs in on the Wilson side of my father's. He dabbled with heroin, sniffing it. I don't think he ever shot it up, but um, he was definitely drinking alcohol, cocaine, um, pills, you know, and... Um, he and and LSD. How much of that played a role in your own struggles? Well, I mean, it was very, uh, the household was just so unpredictable, you know. As a child, Carney faced her father's drug addiction and his destructive mental health challenges. And as an adult, she'd have to grapple with things like fame, her weight, and a vicious cycle of coping that led her down a dark road of addiction and disaster. It was the late 1970s, and Carney was a kid growing up in the Hollywood Hills of California. She attended private schools with children from other famous families, and like her father, she was musically gifted and found her comfort in theater and performance. But Carney was also dealing with a lot of trauma at home. I grew up with just really like crazy erratic behavior. My mom was married at 16 and had me at 20. At 21 and a half, she had my sister, Wendy, and she was just like a baby. My mom tried very hard to sort of shield us. And, and then my dad was like full on in his drug addiction right after I was born. There were times when I felt like I was, I was a parent, you know, like real, like the memories, you know, as a kid, like I get flashbacks of like, you know, when my dad brought this drug addict woman in the house, her name was Debbie. Um, I was maybe nine, nine years old, 10. And knowing that my father was in the bedroom, we don't know what he's doing. He's crazy in there and, and we couldn't get him out. And it's just like, that is a horrible thing for a child to go through. And, you know, it's not that you look for a pity party here. It's reality of what I experienced. So no wonder I turned to sugar. The final straw was my father when I was like, um, I think it was 11. I remember going in the, the maid's room and I just vaguely remember being there. I don't remember this happening, but I remember me running out of the room, but apparently he tried to make me sniff some heroin. And I ran up to mom and I said, mommy, mommy, daddy's wants me to sniff this yellow powder on my nose. And that next day she said, that's it. You know, I'm done. And, and she filed for divorce and that was it because, you know, her kids weren't safe anymore. My dad was an alcoholic. I remember I, he would he would give anyone the shirt off his back, the hardest working man. He loves his family. But when he got those beers in him, it was traumatic, you know, and and but but I didn't think for any second that he didn't love me or, or anything like that. It's just that he was in so much pain and that illness, that disease is so much stronger and, and it turns people into Jekyll and Hyde. It's true. 
That incident with her father destroyed what was left of her parents' marriage. And Carney coped with the pain with sugar. I was very overweight and always teased, and it was, there was a lot of sadness there. It was really rough. But when I got into uh, junior high and high school, because my, my class was like, um, everybody was together all those years. You know, it was all these kids of, like, you know, actors and singers, their kids. And it, so everybody kind of understood sort of the, the rhythm of a, of a family in the entertainment industry. Carney would find other ways to self-medicate as a teenager in the early 1980s, including smoking weed. But she also found a positive outlet in music. It's brought me joy since I'm a little, little girl. And I used to sing harmony with, my mom taught me how to sing harmony with, with Wendy driving down Sunset Boulevard in her um, convertible Mercedes and um, listen to like Hart and Bob Seger and and she would teach me how to sing harmony. And it was like, I felt, I found this, like, um, it was something that I like felt in my, like in my blood, in my system, in my cells, like in my body, I'd have like a physical, like a, you know, a visceral reaction to harmony and music. And, um, I didn't know what that was. I just knew that I was obsessed with music. And then I was obsessed with harmony and I used to go to school and, and, and get everybody gathered around the, the, um, picnic bench, you know, and like during free period and lunch period, we would, we would sing like harmony, um, peaceful, easy feeling by the Eagles. And, and I would like tell everybody, okay, you sing this part and you sing this part and here's the low and here's the middle and here's the high. And I found like a, like my place, you know, that was what I was gravitating towards. And that is how Wilson Phillips formed, you know, just, just after I graduated high school, I was, um, 18 and I was sitting on the floor, you know, smoking bong loads, of course. I bought uh, Abacab by Genesis. I bought Wild Heart by Stevie Nicks. And I bought uh, Heart's Greatest Hits and Doobie Brothers and all my favorites, Steely Dan, you know, and Fleetwood Mac. And we just, we just started harmonizing, my sister and I. And then China came over one day and it was very innocent. But I just said, hey, you know, why don't we sing harmony? And China's like, what's that? You know, and she had no idea, you know. And, um, and her, you know, she comes from the Mamas and Papas family. So everybody had it. We all have it in our blood. And I just said, well, Wendy, why don't you sing the high part in China? You sing the middle part and I'll sing the low. And we started singing and there was this incredible sound. And my mom came downstairs and she said, what are you guys doing? And I said, we're harmonizing, you know, and she goes, what is that sound? And I'm like, I don't know. We're just, just singing. And she goes, you guys got to do something with that. And they did. In 1989, Carney and Wendy Wilson, daughters of Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, joined their childhood friend China Phillips, daughter of John and Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, to form Wilson Phillips. China's mom told the girls to go see renowned record producer Richard Perry to help get their careers off the ground. We go over his house. He's rolling a joint. He lived in Ronald Reagan's old house. And he and we prepared. He's like, well, what are you going to sing for me? Because um, we we he told us to like have something prepared to sing for him, almost like an audition. And we were like, all right. And then we sang um, five words of of a Stevie Nicks song called Wild Heart. And we sang five words and he and it was three, three part harmony. And he's like, that's it. That's all you're going to sing. And we said, yeah, do you like it? He, and he's like, I love it. It's like, I this is this is unbelievable. Wilson Phillips became a sensation. Their music videos were all over VH1 and MTV, and their songs were everywhere. It was an era where the band would put out several hit singles, including a cover of Daniel from Elton John. 
who once tucked a young Carney Wilson into bed when he was visiting her father. Now, Carney was used to life in the entertainment industry with her famous dad, but this was a whole new ballgame for her. She was smoking a lot of weed to help cope with the spotlight. I became a stoner the last year of high school. I would say my senior year. It started to be a more regular use. I remember I came to school high quite a bit, maybe like towards the end of the Maybe the second half of the of my senior year when i graduated high school i barely graduated i went was right into the wilson phillips career right into the music career and i just delved into like the harmony the singing and then demos in the studio we were i was on the road to professional career but at the same time i was on and off smoking pot because i I couldn't be high all the time because I had work to do. And it was like this great opportunity. And I knew it back then. And I always tried to stop. I remember like, I think I was 19 and uh, I went to an, a Marijuana's Anonymous meeting and I, I clearly wasn't ready, didn't understand it. No, just backed out and just left. And that was that. Carney was just 19 when fame rocked her world. Wilson Phillips released their first single, Hold On, in February of 1990. And by the summer, it was the number one single in the U.S. You had such a unique upbringing, you know, obviously not just because of your famous father, but, you know, how things got started with Wilson Phillips. What was your reaction when you found out that a song that you guys wrote together number one in the charts. It was mind blowing. It was 3 a.m. and uh, the, the record company um, you know, president called and said, you did it, baby, you're number one. And we, I just burst into tears and screamed, screamed. And, and Wendy was next door and she heard me screaming in the room. And she's like, what happened, what happened? You know, and went in the hallway and I'm like, number one, you know, and, and I've got a picture of Wendy in the hallway. I, I, I had my camera with me and I, I, I captured a lot of these moments, you know. I have them in my photo albums at home. And it was just unbelievable. It was all a dream come true. But being number one brought its own unique challenges around sustaining that success. There was a lot of pressure on Carney, and she found relief in her old friend, marijuana. I did battle with stopping and starting and stopping and starting. And it would like, it was such a thing like, okay, today, it's like the insanity, you know, same thing with alcohol, the insanity of today's the day I'm not going to smoke, today's the day I'm not going to drink. And sometimes, you know, staying clean for a little while, but always going back. And, um, you know, the years would go by, I got into a relationship with a full-blown addict. We became engaged. I, this is my early 20s. We used together for, for years and um, it became really, just really ugly that whole thing, you have a partner where you enable each other's addiction. I wasn't aware of that at the time. I just knew that I, I loved to smoke pot. I wanted to be a stoner. He was a stoner. We were a perfect match. And at the same time, the pressure from her record company was becoming more than Carney could handle. We had to create the music and the, the, um, we were just nonstop working and they never gave us a break. We were forced to go right into the second album and we were growing up in real time with this record. So. Um, we had started therapy. I, we all started a therapy um, and started dealing with our emotions. 
that second record that we made called Shadows and Light was all about our childhood and growing up and, and becoming young adults. And and partly some of, the, of some of the whirlwind that we experienced, but really more reflecting back. Time, time makes a mockery of all your dreams. This is a certainty. It was a very cathartic album, and the, the pressure of having to be successful like the first one hit us like a tidal wave, and it was very, very, very difficult. We started fighting because it was like, you know, um, no, we should do this. No, we should do this. Our egos really came into play. When we go in the studio, I have to direct them and say, no, you're flat. Sing it again. I was controlling. I'm still controlling. Wendy and China and I had to go through certain life situations like we got married, we had children. Mm. And we sort of reached this kind of this point where we realized there's something really missing now. I was in a major depression and my fiance and I broke up at that time. So I was kind of like starting from scratch. In 1993, just a few years after forming, Wilson Phillips split up. Carney was devastated, confused and frustrated. After a tough breakup with her ex-fiance, Cardi started working in film and television and got married to her husband, Rob. But she was worried that her career was at a standstill. She was drowning in tax debt, and on top of everything else, Carney's weight became a major health crisis. I weighed about 310, 310 pounds, you know, and I'm like 5'3". So I was quite heavy. And I was doing some acting, you know, I had a talk show that was already done. Mm -hmm. One day I woke up and I couldn't feel the right side of my face. And I, my face was frozen and I thought I was having a stroke. I was at a personal low and a health low. Bell's palsy is what I had, where the seventh cranial nerve gets swollen, freezes the muscles in your face, and it's like the same uh, symptoms as a stroke, uh, not the arm, but your face. Call the doctor and he's like, you have Bell's palsy. Wow. And I had actually had just um, acted in a, in a um, NBC miniseries called The 60s, where I played Mama Earth. And I had to go to a red carpet event and I had the Bell's palsy and, you know, I'm walking the red carpet like, yeah, smiling with half a face, you know, frozen. But I really used that as a metaphor in the time of my life. My manager was involved with this company that had some celebrities come on and talk about their their different illnesses. And he said to me, you know, I know a doctor in San Diego that's really helped a lot of people um, with morbid obesity. And he wants to talk to you about having a gastric bypass surgery. And I had heard stomach stapling before, but I, I was not um, well. I was really physically not well. 31 years old and I was, uh, the doctor said to me, you know, your liver is totally toxic. It's inflamed. You know, your, your blood work's not great. You're, you're, you're going to have diabetes within one year and you're not going to see 40 years old if you don't lose weight. And I was like, this is my only option. And I thought, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to go for it. Even though gastric bypass surgery was a relatively new procedure at the time, in 1999, Carney wanted to take that major step toward becoming a better, more healthy version of herself. After a quick break, we'll learn how Carney used her illness to help inspire a new generation of fans who struggled with obesity 
and how she faced her own battles with addiction. What a beautiful evening for some music outside. Indy 1023 is proud to be a media partner of Levitt Pavilion. The season's underway with ticketed shows, plus over 50 shows open to the public. Down for a couple more songs. Tickets and for the full concert calendar, levittdenver.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We Can Heal. That's at the core of CPR's recovery podcast, Back From Broken, which has returned for a new season. Before the break, Carney Wilson shared the challenges of growing up with a celebrity dad who was addicted to drugs and her own struggles with weight. Here again, host Vic Vela. In 1999, Carney was facing a serious decision. To better her health and possibly save her life, she underwent a gastric bypass. Carney wanted her surgery televised as a way to inspire others who were struggling with their weight. I am morbidly obese. I am so obese to the fact that I could die. For years, pop singer Carney Wilson waged a very public battle with her weight. Starting from a young age, Wilson found that her addiction to food was more powerful than she was. I know that it will always be a battle. By the age of 31, the I wound up really touching a lot of people, and it was actually that that was frightening for me. I could not handle it. My body was completely uh, unfamiliar. I would cry on my husband's, my new husband's chest. I would cry, I, I, I'm not myself. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? I didn't know who I was. And because it was such a physical change, so drastic, so quickly, my mind could not catch up with my body. And that's when I started to drink alcohol. I discovered wine. I was never a wine drinker. And then I discovered vodka. And when I discovered vodka, all bets were off for me. What did that look like, Carney, your, your vodka drinking? It was uh, every day more, um, starting earlier in the, in, in the day. Um, it, was, it was centering my activities around alcohol, going to lunch, drinking, going to concerts, drinking, cooking and baking dinner for my husband, drinking, getting drunk, lying, going out shopping with my girlfriends and drinking in the middle of the day. I found a great drinking buddy. She introduced me to the martini. Because of the gastric bypass, the alcohol um, goes through your system quicker. Wow. I didn't even think about that. Wow. Get drunk faster, go straight to your liver, which is very dangerous. I had a surgery to remove excess skin from the weight loss. I had my boobs done. I was feeling really sexy and I was, uh, I got prescription for some Valium and when I, you know, to, to, for the surgery. And when I found Valium, I was like, Whoa, this is the best thing I've ever felt. Things got a little better for Carney after her transformative bypass surgery. She bought a home and was even asked to pose for Playboy magazine. But this period is when alcohol took over her life. By the grace of God, I say now I didn't die of alcohol poisoning earlier because I was drinking a lot of vodka every day. I remember the Osbournes reality show was on TV and I was like obsessed with it. Rob and I loved watching it. And I would go in commercial breaks and I would have a big, big, big mug, big, big tall glass of straight vodka. Um, and I would go into the closet. You know, I can smell it. I can taste it. I would go into my little closet and I would just chug this vodka during the commercial breaks of washing the Osbournes. And I'd come back more drunk and more drunk and more drunk. And I would just pass out. 
my husband, you know, he saw everything progress and progress and progress. We started really fighting about it. And I started asking my husband and everybody around me, do you think I'm an alcoholic? Do you think I'm an alcoholic? I just, I just wanted, it was like, I wanted everybody to say to me, you need help because I was semi-functioning. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I was laying in bed all day drinking and I wasn't going out of the house and I wasn't bathing. I was still doing occasional hosting on TV. I was, you know, and, but it was this internal struggle where I could not stop. I was starting to just, this is when I hit my rock bottom with drinking was right after Playboy, right after that. And um, Rob, my husband, was going to make a, a, an album of his own and he left town. I was by myself drinking every night. In the early 2000s, Carney's drinking and prescription drug use reached a critical point. She was alone and depressed. She was even hiding her drinking from her husband. On the phone with him, trying to stay sober and not sound drunk, and kind of like, don't worry, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm not drinking, but lying, and he knew mm. it. I remember just with those, those days, I was waking up, you know, apparently I was calling everybody from my closet, you know, um, I, apparently I liked drinking in the closet, even when there was nobody in the house. It was like a safe place. It was quiet. I had bruises all over my body and everything. And a couple of days before I got sober, I, I was driving down. Coldwater Canyon, which is a canyon that takes you from like Beverly Hills into the valley in LA. And I was like, you know, mm -hmm. I could just turn my wheel and just drive off the cliff. You know what I mean? I was like, I could just, I mean, that, that'll make me stop. I, I could stop drinking then. I won't be alive. I won't have to worry about it. And I, I was, I had a husband who loved me. I had careers. I had a beautiful home. I was empty inside. And I remember waking up one day and looking outside, um, the window and it was in my master bedroom and I was looking outside the window and we had this beautiful wow. property and there was all these beautiful trees, you know, big, beautiful trees of all different colors. And, and I just looked outside and I was like, Jesus, I was like, God help me. Mm. You know, I just said, God help me. I need you, God. And it was like, I, I was spiritual before I even knew what being spiritual meant. And I walked into the rooms of AA and I've never left. And this was uh, um, 2004, and um, I admitted that I was an alcoholic and my life was unmanageable. Yeah. And then I worked the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous with a sponsor, and that's where my journey began in sobriety. Carney got to step one and faced her addiction head on. And today, her challenges have given her a new perspective on addiction and her traumatic childhood. I think if kids go through any kind of traumatic experience, it's in the cells of their body, you know, and they carry it with them. And unless you're in some kind of, unless you have some kind of therapy or you're working on, you know, not reliving the events, but in a way, yes, because we stuff these things down inside of us and we ha and we build these, these walls around us to stay tough, to stay, and to survive. And um, let's face it, you know, they're not usually healthy. It's like, What's the solution to it all? Get it all off your chest. If you're imbalanced chemically, maybe you take an antidepressant. Get therapy, exercise, proper sleep, proper nutrition. These things that are healthy, they're not my first go-to. 
It's not my first go-to to like treat my fear and my anxiety and traumas with healthy things. It's boring. You know, I want to check out, you know, oh, you know, a walk, a bath. Oh, whoa. What do you do? An Amy. But guess what? I've learned that they, those things work. The difference between the sugar addiction and, and then that kind of stuff is that you got to live every day and you got to eat. Yeah. So you really have to make choices because it's like, you know, I can't just say, oh, I'm going to have a little bit of marijuana. Oh, I'm going to have a little bit of vodka. You know, I'm going to have a little bit of wine. That's not an option. So, you know, it's all or nothing. And with, with sugar, it was like, that was my first friend. And then alcohol and drugs became my absolute best friend ever later. I wound up almost suicidal over it. Nothing took away that need to use and it just was so powerful and overcame everything i wish i could have one drink and that would be it it's just not the way we're wired yeah mm. it's amazing how something from 30 plus years ago is still relevant today I was looking back on the lyrics of Release Me, which was one of the first songs, if not the the first song that you all wrote together. I'm not going back to you anymore. Finally, my weakened heart is healing. Though very slow. So stop coming around my door because you're not going to find what you're looking for. I view everything through the lens of recovery. And, and to me, that's something I would write like in a letter to cocaine or alcohol. Jesus, I, I never thought of Release Me in that way. That's really amazing. Because I kept thinking it's like love, love, love interest. But now that I look at it, 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 it can be about that. Drugs and alcohol, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. It's knocking on your door. But guess what? We've changed, you know? Um, we've released that part of ourselves. That's amazing. You know, right now there may be a teenage kid listening to this, right? Who, um, who might be struggling with weight or body issues or drugs and alcohol. I guess, what would you say to them? <sighs> this is where I don't want to cry. <laughs> this is the part where I get very emotional. But what I say to my own daughter is that there is solution to everything we're feeling. There's a solution to uh, depression or anxiety. There are tools and life is worth living and there are ways to find happiness. It's okay to be vulnerable. I, I've learned to right size myself and, and stay in gratitude because I think gratitude is the number one most important thing. It's the opposite of having a resentment and resentments will take you out. Resentments will lead you to drink. Um, gratitude will keep you grounded and um, and bring positive energy into your life. Carney hasn't drank since 2004 and continues to be grateful for the highs and lows of life and the miracles of recovery. Just a few days ago, you know, I'm doing a quick grocery shopping and I'm very anxious. I'm in some financial fear right now. And I was walking through the market and like I do where I know that anywhere I am, if I'm feeling 
uh, you know, scared or nervous or anxious or wanting to use, I can stop and pray no matter where I am. Praying is really helpful for me. And at the market, I'm standing in front of the Tostitos, you know, and I'm like, God, please, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, my attitude, my fear, my outlook, and the mm. wisdom to know the difference. And I said, angels, please give me a sign that everything is going to be okay. Two minutes later, hold on. My gosh. On. And I, I just. <laughs> that is unbelievable. So it, it's like, yeah. I, what, what can I say, you know? Oh, wow. What a moment, Carney. Those things happen in recovery and it's just amazing. And there's, it, there's no way to explain it other than thank you, God. But when we let go and let God, in this case, yeah. uh, things, beautiful things happen. Carney lives in LA with her husband and two daughters, and she still works her recovery program every single day. Back from Broken is a show about how we're all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. If you're struggling with alcoholism or mental health issues, you can find a list of resources at our website, backfrombroken.org. Back from Broken with Vic Vela. Available everywhere you get podcasts and at CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.